remain standing. And if you want to turn, if you brought a Bible or want to access one right there in front of you, turn to John chapter 8. I see some rustling, some movement. John chapter 8. We're going to have the passage on the screen in a second. Uh, If you just want to do that, John chapter 8. We're going to read a couple of verses and I'm going to isolate a word and come back to that word. And um, I want you to try to guess what word I'm going to isolate uh, from this passage, John chapter 8. It's not a wisdom or intelligence question. It's just a, it's guesswork. But uh, what word from John chapter 8? Have I given you time? If you want to turn there, John chapter 8, we'll read 31 and 32. I'm holding my Bible. I'm opening my Bible, but this print is larger and I'm not getting any younger. So I'm going to go with this. John 8, 31, 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What word do y'all think I'm selecting today to preach? Just look at it, take a guess. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray today that this powerful word would in us take root, that it would bear fruit as you would will. And it's easy, I think, especially in the West, especially in America, especially in the South, to uh, see this as, uh, hey, what's the preacher got today? But Lord, I pray that you would instruct us and uh, reveal to us and prompt us our part, everybody today in the house and at home, that we would think about our part to hear, our part to receive. And even our part to respond today to what we talk about. God, let this time be yours in Jesus. Amen. You may be seated, all of you. Today, we're beginning a a brand new series. We start a new month. It's the first Sunday, first day of August. There's five Sundays in the month. And so we're going to do a five-week series on faith. Uh, Everybody knows, you don't even have to be a person of faith to be unsurprised by this uh, comment, but that the Bible says a lot about faith. It tells us uh, what faith is. Some of you are too systemized in your thinking. You don't allow for mystery and nuance, but the Bible is pretty clear. Uh, In Hebrews 11, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's evidence of things unseen. Uh, We're told uh, in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We're told in Romans 1... Uh, that the righteous or the just will live by faith. We're told, I love this, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, I appreciate you, this little church in Thessalonica. It says, I appreciate you, and this may be the key to it all, that you are putting your faith into practice. James chapter 1 tells us that your faith, our faith, it will be tested. Paul said to Timothy, his young protege in the faith, that toward the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In Romans 16, we're told to be strong and courageous. The same language from Joshua of old. Be strong and courageous. uh, courageous. Be on the alert. Be on guard and stand firm in your faith. And the apostles in Luke 17, 5, it says that the apostles ask the Lord to increase their faith. Today, as we look at faith in these, this month of August, today we're going to hone in on this, how to have a faith that you can keep, uh, to stand firm in it, to continue in it, to, to be able to say that, hey, I finished the race, I didn't, I didn't quit, I didn't fall back, I stayed the course. Uh, that's the kind of faith that God wants to produce in us. Hey, Lord, would you increase our faith? And I threw up on my Instagram a couple of days ago, hey, 
losing faith and uh, leaving the faith and deconstructing the faith is nothing new. It's happened and it happens and it will happen. And you and I have to be on guard and stand firm. So Lord, would you increase our faith? So here's, I, I want to give you a couple of, uh, well, actually three fallacies that we fall victim to. That we, that come up in conversation, that that rustle around in our hearts that we, I think all of us deal with in some way. So three fallacies, I'm giving a heads up for you note takers. And I want to talk about it. But listen, one of the things that we uh, need to get more firm about is, as we ask the questions, is faith good? One uh, Christian apologist uh, not too long ago said that the biggest question today is not, is Christianity true? Is, is Christianity good? And so today, consider, you'll, you'll need to, if you're going to have a faith that you'll keep, that you can keep, that you'll want to keep, that you'll be glad in keeping, you'll need to answer these questions. Is faith good? Is faith good for you? Is faith good for the world? Is faith reasonable? And so let me say today that faith is good. Faith is good for you, and it's good for the world in which we live Studies show, now I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. We're supposed to be cynical and we're supposed to selectively point out all the bad. But studies show us that people of faith are happier, more charitable, have more stable families, and contribute more to their communities. If I have hit some resistance uh, in anybody today, anybody skeptical about that, you maybe think, well, here goes the preacher. He's going to cite a Lifeway study or maybe Barna or something like that. Nothing wrong with them. But no, I'm not going to do that. The London Sunday Times, June of 2014, a group of researchers drawing from the records from the National Institute of Health, as they study things and coalesce these findings, they ask a central question, London Sunday Times, June 14th, they asked the question to the readers, do you want to live longer? And their answer was, from their research, you may, it may be better for you to go to church than to go to the gym. Now, they don't know about some of those Sunday after church cholesterol high picnics that, that we attended right here in the deep south. But you'd be better off going to church than going to the gym, perhaps. A Duke University study su- suggests from their findings that people who have a deep and genuine faith delay the onset of both physical and mental illnesses. A Michigan study said that it, the, a quality of life is more determined by what you believe than by what you have. And of course, faith, central, just speaking largely, of course, of Christianity, but faith across the philosophical spectrum, faith addresses that, uh, it, what you believe more over than what you have or what you possess a University of Virginia study talked about a research that they concluded that they coalesced that uh, men who attend church on a regular basis a religious service on a weekly basis are 50 percent less likely to commit violence against their spouse a University of Michigan study talked about how that 2.4% 2.4% of marriages, or, or, or marriages, both husband and wife who attend a religious service together regularly, are 2.4% less likely to get a divorce. A Syracuse study talked about people of faith are 40% more likely to be charitable. A Los Angeles Times reputable, reliable writer talked about in their findings 
that people of faith, as opposed to secular people, are more likely to register to vote and vote, and much more likely, some 50% more likely to help the homeless. Study after study after study tells us, now I know, I know, I know, we're supposed to be cynical, we're supposed to selectively look for all the bad, but let me say, faith is good for you. Faith is good for you and it's good for the world. And people of faith have found over and over again, we, have, we are finding that people of faith are happier. They're more charitable. They have more stable relationships and give back more to their communities. So today, as we consider the role of faith, let's, let me ask you, how many of you have a strong faith today? How many of you say, I am a person of faith and my faith is growing. How, how many of you would say, man, I've got real doubts. I'm plagued by them. Here's what I love about the scripture. That last question is uncomfortable for uh, some of us. But what I love about the scripture is just a, a few places here that's really beautiful to me, that's resonated with me over the last really two to three decades of my life, of my journey spiritually. But we know about doubting Thomas, but in Matthew, after the resurrection, I love this, that Matthew, in his account of Jesus, he drops this in there. He says that some worshiped, some believed, and some doubted. There's that story that I think typifies a lot of us, even in this current moment. Hey, Lord, I believe, I believe, but help my unbelief. In Jude, anybody read Jude lately? Just one little chapter tucked in the back of the New Testament. It says, be merciful to those who doubt. Some worship, some believe, but some doubted. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Hey, be merciful to those who doubt. Why? I go back to Jesus because Jesus was. You, you know that people came to Jesus with questions, deep questions. And not once did Jesus not show mercy. Now, some people left uh, unsatisfied. Think of the rich young ruler. It was, it was a sad ending, but Jesus always showed mercy and never do you see. Now, the church does this. Hear me now. The church does this, but Jesus never said, don't ask that question. Don't read that book. Don't think that thought. He wants us. And, you know, I want to be the kind of church. Help me in this. I want to be that kind of church where everyone is respected and any question can be asked. You say, preacher, what are you saying to everybody? First Peter 2, respect everyone. We would be that church that would respect everyone and that we could ask any question. Why? Because all of us are, can be at a place, time and time again, where we ask that, Lord, we, Lord, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? And so let's be merciful to, to ourselves and to others when we have doubts. Doubt is not an obstacle to faith. It's actually an element of faith. I think I plagiarized that quote, but somebody, I, I'm still in sort of loosely from somebody. But it's not an obstacle to your faith. It's an element of your faith. You won't grow deeper with meaning and sincerity and genuine faith if you don't walk through those doubts and have them. So the three fallacies today, let me start uh, here with the first one. Remember, we got a word from John chapter 8, and uh, we're going to get there uh, toward the end. But here's the first uh, fallacy, the first line of thinking that we can fall victim to. Faith is believing things for no real reason. So can you, can you believe in logic, learning, and reason, but also believe in an unseen, supernatural, miraculous God? One more time, can, can, you, can you do both? Can you believe in logic, learning, and reason, but also believe in an unseen, miraculous, supernatural God? Check out 
Paul at Mars Hill. Some of y'all know I've listened to that Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast about a church that named themselves after this account in the city of Athens. Here's Mars Hill, Athens, back in the day. Acts 17, we're looking at verse 16 to 18. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, there's that word, he reasoned in the synagogue with them, both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. Those are the Enneagram 7s. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Y'all, this was new. This is Christianity in its genesis, so new, and people had questions. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Athens was the pinnacle of intellectual thought. Think Socrates, think Aristotle, think Plato. Logic and reason and debate and rhetoric and all that had really high value. We look at our phones and we're entertained by a myriad of diversions and entertainment, um, just tons of it. But they sat and they sipped and they talked and they talked about beauty and justice and order and goodness and what constitutes the good life and what ideas do you have about the afterlife, on and on. And this was what was happening in that day. And it says here, just a little bit of edumacation here, it says that Paul was w- w- talking to the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, and then it mentions uh, different isms. It mentions the Epicureans and the, the Stoics, these philosophers. These were smart men and smart women, mostly men, but some women, uh, different culture back then. But they, were, uh, they had ideas, and the Epicureans, they were a, a group of people who primarily, almost exclusively, believed in just the physical universe that they could see. They just believed in physicalism. They had a a saying that there's um, nothing to fear of God because there's no supernatural. There's nothing to feel in death because there's no afterlife. It's all just physical. The Stoics, now we use the word Stoic some in our day. We use it as an adjective to describe certain personalities. I've never been called a Stoic, but uh, maybe some of you have. It's not a good thing or bad thing necessarily, but a Stoic just holds it in. I rarely ask them. I rarely hold anything in, but a Stoic is, uh, we we say, is someone that's reserved. And back then, more philosophically, uh, academically speaking, a Stoic was someone who valued reason over emotion. And Paul is talking to them, and it says, if you'll notice, he reasoned with them. He reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. He he reasoned with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh, The prophet Isaiah, come now and let us reason together. You see, the Christian faith has always, from the very beginning, has always wanted to cultivate the life of the mind. The interior life of the soul, the habits that you develop, but also the life of your mind that you would think, that you would be able to reason. Now think about the beginning of Christianity. Here's the best estimates of when this thing got started back in this time. But by, these are the best estimates that I've seen and studied. But the, at the year 40, in the year 40, A.D. 40, there was an estimated 1,000 Christians in the world, the Mediterranean, Palestinian world at the time, 1,000 Christians. And it grew. And by uh, the year 100, AD 100, there were some 10,000 plus Christians. 
And then by the year 200, AD 200, there were over 200,000 estimated followers of Jesus. But then after that, only 100 years after that, there were some estimated 5 to 6 million. A book I recommend, Rodney Stark, The Triumph of Christianity, talks, puts it this way. The Christian understanding of how things are did not grow by avoiding rational conversation on the basis of authority. It grew by inviting rational conversation when opposed by authority. Gene, if you would lead that up a minute, I'll need it. Think about that for just a second. Let me introduce this idea of authority. We all know that some of us, and this could be your story, uh, you know, you believe something because your parents told you, because an authority, maybe religion-wise, you went to a school that said, believe this, and it was wise for you to get in line and believe what the authorities said for you to believe. And a lot of people obviously live that way. So, but the authorities, listen, these early Christians, the authority opposed them. It was not at that point. I mean, the church, whenever the church, I preach this often, whenever the church gets money and power and political clout, it runs aground. It loses its purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as the church got started, it's, when it grew and it multiplied and it spread as rapidly as it ever had, it did so being opposed by authority. These early Christians, these little Christ, these followers of the way, as they were called before Acts 11 in the church at Antioch, these believers, they were persecuted and they were executed. Some of us in America, they're like, ah, we're being persecuted. And I don't want to start a fight necessarily. But I think some of us, we've just lost some preferential treatment. We've lost some status. And I don't know that it's necessarily persecution. It may be coming. But let me tell you, they knew about persecution. And it's when the church spread at one of its fastest points, certainly the fastest point in the early days. So one more time here, they, the Christian understanding of how things are did not grow by avoiding rational conversation on the basis of authority. It grew by inviting it. And we see that in Paul. We see this at Mars Hill. We see it and we are called. We are called to invite reason into the discussion. It's a fallacy to think that faith is eh, it's just believing things for no good reason. There's actually evidence and assurance. Now, isn't that a funny passage? I quoted it at the outset, Hebrews 11. Faith is what the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Like we go, yay, assurance and evidence, baby. Give me some of that. Aisle nine at Kroger. Assurance and evidence. I'm, I'm, I'm going there. But hope for and not seen is where it gets funny, doesn't it? It gets a little murky. But are there reasons for our faith? And what are those reasons? Second, fallacy that, that we can fall for that we, 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 we're, we're, as we do fall for it we won't have a faith that we can keep you can't believe here's the fallacy you can't believe in both faith and science now what's the role of science the role of science is to faithfully advocate the data in front of them that's what a scientist does. They faithfully advocate, understand and advocate the data. From now, this is, this is a funny point today with this virus running around. Like, y'all are like, is he going to get political? Is he going to take a stance? Is he gonna... And uh, some of us are knocking science and knocking science and knocking science. I've been a little guilty of it myself. I've said some unflattering things about the CDC in the last year and a half, okay? But I repent. But listen, science, uh, Francis Collins said this, the former head of the Human Genome Project and the director of the National Institutes of Health, who is a brilliant person and a Christian. He said, science is not truth, truth. It's not the truth, truth. Science is the pursuit of truth. 
And so when it is wrong, it goes back to what it, it has learned. But listen, science is, the, the role of the scientist is to formulate, to faithfully, faithfully audit and advocate for the data in front of them. But for the follower of Jesus, for the thinking Christian, for the one who would be equipped, 1 Peter 3.15, to be re- get ready to give a reason for the answer, the hope that is in you, the one that can reason, the, the, the role of the Christian is to faithfully nurture the evidence of faith in front of them. And so it's our charge, it's our challenge to be able to do that. We need, let me tell you, if you just go science, if you just go science and you just say, you conclude that we are just raw, logical machines, then you're missing the broad, you know, the, the challenge against religion, certainly religion can be this, it can narrow your life and it can restrict your life. Some of the conversations I'm having with people that are deconstructing their faith, look, I'm telling them, I'm finding common ground, I would deconstruct that faith that you're talking about myself because it's constricted you. It's rigid and it's joyless and it doesn't lead to the freedom that Jesus talks about when we discover the truth. Here, faith has this role. And the role of faith picks up where science can't. And so as a scientist, it should be a good thing. Again, Jesus never said, don't read that book. Don't ask that question. Don't think that thought. He invites it. What if we were a church that respected everyone, where every person is respected and any question could be asked? You could ask your deepest questions and look for honest, real, raw, open answers to them. We need science and we need songs. Think of Psalm 96. Let the heavens, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the seas resound. Let the fields and all that's in them uh, experience jubilation. That is song and we need it. For anybody, look, I've never met, I've, I've met some smart scientists that have faith and don't have faith, but I've never met someone that's just into f- to physicalism and science that has joy to their lives. I'm just a raw, logical machine. It's empty, it's not beautiful, and it's not broad, it's not open to encompass the mystery and beauty of the universe. And so we need the Psalms, we need songs. Man, could you imagine not having this book? Could you not have, imagine not having the songs? Could you not have, imagine not having the beauty and being able to attest to what God has created and to feel that in the deepest parts of your soul? We need science and we need song. You can't believe in both faith and science. One of the things that's helped me, and I believe that's helped me be on the path to have a faith that I can keep, to not lose it, to not leave it, to not deconstruct it, but to, to, to evolve as it needs to evolve, but to, to keep it and grow steadfast with it, to be able to say at the end of my life, what a blessing this would be for my family, for this church, for those around me, to be able to say that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In this, we need the elements that faith brings. We need to be able to look at this world and appreciate the mystery of it all. The third, well, let me, I failed at this point. One of the things that's helped me to keep my faith and to, for my faith to grow is I pray the same prayer of Acts 17, 5, Lord, increase my faith. It's been to learn from intelligent people who have a robust faith. 
to learn from people who could stand up here today and much more intelligently say than I, hey, faith is not believing things for no good reason. There's been uh, people throughout the history. I've appreciated Isaac Watts studying some Christian biographies. Hey, look, I know the thing is to scroll with your thumb on your phone all day, but I would just encourage anybody inclined to read some, read something a little more robust and meaty and to consider some great Christian biographies, women and men who've walked with Christ, who have loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. One of those is Isaac Watts. Uh, Y'all know Joy to the World? When we get past 115 degrees today and move closer uh, to December, I I envision that uh, Lauren will do this right in here, singing Joy to the World. Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World. And some people think faith, I heard it a few weeks ago, some people think faith is just, hey, it's just somebody going on a really strong emotion. And they wrap all this belief and all this worldview around this very, very strong emotion. Now, Joy to the World gets me. It really gets me. But Isaac Watts was a logic teacher. He was one of the premier logic professors and writers. He, he wrote the textbook on logic of his day. And God has always brought people like Isaac Watts, like Paul, like Augustine, like Aquinas, like Dorothy Sayers, like C.S. Lewis. My oldest uh, son is reading uh, Mere Christianity right now on his own. He's just doing that as a, on his own. What a great way to, to look and say, I don't have to borrow my parents' faith. I don't have to think in isolation, but I can learn from other great thinkers and other great leaders who've gone before me. It's not just strong emotion, people. There's reason for it, reason for it. The third fallacy that we can fall toward, I'm just skimming the surface, no one can really know about spiritual truths. Keep thinking, keep searching, keep asking, keep grappling and wrestling with God. Don't give up and don't conclude because it's spiritual truths that no one can know about spiritual truth. Or add to that, if you're a note taker, add moral knowledge. Now, let me preach for a second. I got a few more minutes. The word that I want to select from John 8, 31 and 32 is the word no. The word no. Because whether you believe Jesus was right or wrong, he claimed to have knowledge. He said, I know. He he claimed to have knowledge. So let me ask you a, a question, and I'll follow it up with another question. So two questions, if you're scoring at home. And most of my questions are rhetorical, but I'd love for you to answer this out loud, okay? Uh, the first question is this. I'll give you a second to think on it. Since you're going to answer out loud, you don't want to be wrong in front of your peers. But uh, can you believe something and be wrong about it, okay? Can you believe something and be wrong about it? Y'all ready to answer? Here we go. Can you believe something and be wrong about it? Absolutely. Look, my wife all the time tells me that I am wrong about something. Yeah, y'all got to listen. But look, yes, yes, you can believe something. In fact, hear me now. You can believe something at the top of your lungs with, and feel very certain that you're right, and you can be wrong. A friend of mine, he, he's one of my pastors. He says, man, the truth about you, RG, is you don't know the truth about you. you, you hey, Robert, you, when I'm telling him about a problem, he's like, hey, Robert, you need to be aware that you might not be aware. And then I hang up on him and go live my life the way I want to. Hey, listen. You can believe something and you can be wrong about it. Second question, follow up to the first. Can you know something and be wrong about it? Hmm? Mm-mm. No. Because you know. 
It's knowledge. It's not just feeling certain about something. It's knowing something is true. And here's the thing. Take it or leave it. Love it or loathe it. But the scripture writers, the biblical writers, all talk about knowing. In fact, the word knowing and knowledge is a pretty big word to the scripture writing writers. And the idea there is that it comes in like a light and it penetrates our world, whatever gloom or darkness or ignorance that we're walking in, whatever lack of wisdom, and it enters into and it, it, it pervades. And, and then we walk into something that's light. Like some people I'm talking to that are le- losing or leaving their faith or concluding that you can't really know about spiritual truth. It's, it's, it's negative and it, it's limiting. It's not broad and beautiful and freeing as our Savior taught. And so, what does it mean to know? And that gets a little tricky here, but let's look at a few of the passages um, that I've selected here. Here we, here we are. If you abide in me and my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. Now, notice the order. This uh, changed my life only a couple of years ago because we have this idea of like, I'm just going to study and study and learn and learn and learn and learn. And now, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to find out, you know, if it's true and then I'm going to make this conclusion and then I'll apply and then I'll follow. And Jesus is like, "Mm -mm. if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We've got to take him at his word. We've got to learn to trust him. We've got to hear what he has to say and apply it to our lives. Can I say today, Jesus will never disappoint you. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians that says, don't put your faith. Remember all those passages on faith I was quoting? Don't put your faith in the wisdom of man, but put it in Christ. Like that, the church at Corinth need to hear that, but you and I need to hear that. Look, people are going to let you down time and time again. I may let you down, probably not, but people are going to let you down. Time and time again, but it's our faith in the truth of the gospel in Jesus and who he is. And that truth will set you free. Acts 1 4. Do we have that? I believe. So that you may know, this is the good doctor, Luke, so that you may know the certainty of things that you have been taught. Can I say something? Christ wants you to know. He wants you to see evidence and sense it and make it a part of your life. Another passage, 2 Peter 1.5, one of my faves. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. Add it to your life. Make it a part of that. And it, it goes on to talk about the moral knowledge of this. Is there another passage behind this one? I can't remember. Yeah, here we go. Paul, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Going back to Peter, when he talks about knowing and adding to your faith, knowledge. Faith and knowledge. They're not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand. There's a phrase that your mama used. You're like, you don't know my mama. I know your mama because she's your mama. And your mama told you, she definitely told me. She used a phrase, several I'm sure on you, but she would tell you this a lot. You know better. Your mom ever told you that? And now you've gotten older. Like, here's the thing. Call your mom after church and say you were dead right. You knew better. She, She would say that you knew better. But here's what she never said to you. She never said to you, you believe better. 
or you preferred better. She said, what? You knew better. We have a couple of sayings. We do this. Don't force your, don't force your opinion on me. You ever told anybody that? Don't, don't force, that's your opinion. Don't force it on me. It's a good thing to use in a fight. Don't force your opinion on me. But we never say don't force your knowledge on me. Because knowledge is different. In the Proverbs, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. Man, we need to add to our faith. We need to add to our faith knowledge. Interesting thing, though, about this is that knowing is the thing. Sometimes we're so worried, and this helped me a few years back, to stop worrying so much about my doubts and to focus on what I know to be true and whether I'm living that out or not. You may remember a man named Michael Cohen. He served in the previous president's administration, was really close, and then they turned their back on each other, had a big fight, and they were trying to throw each other under the bus. And Michael Cohen, as one of Trump's lawyers, testified before a congressional panel. He was admitting his crimes and wrongdoing. And a panelist, a woman, asked him, if you could go back, I love the question, if you could go back and ask your former self what happened, If you could talk to your former self, what would you tell them? And Michael Cohen said, you knew better. You knew better. You knew better. Don't be so worried about your doubts that it gets the best of you. There are things that you know and that you need to act on. There are things that you need to put into practice. So when it comes to faith, I want to close with questions and verbs. Here's the role of faith that's different than science. Gina, can we go back to the questions that science can't answer? Is that uh, available? What science can't answer? Is there a purpose to life? How come there's something instead of nothing? Why should anything exist at all? What's a telescope designed to do? A telescope is designed to see faraway lights, to detect from a distance, to see, you know, the wavelengths along the electromagnetic fields. What's a microscope designed to do? It's it's designed to magnify small objects at the cellular level. That's what they do, and there's, there's a limit. There's beauty there, and it's science, and it's good. We as followers of Jesus should follow truth wherever it leads us, humbly and fearlessly, wherever truth leads us. And science is so good and has a value, but it's limited. And what science can never answer is this. And why is there existence? Why are we here? And even a friend, a doubter friend, a strident skeptic that I know and love— said that to me a few months back. Man, these questions can keep me up at night. Why is there something, and is hope any better than despair? And these questions, science cannot answer. Faith is about questions, if we could go forward. Faith is about questions. The first question ever asked in the Bible is this, Adam, where are you? And can I say, this is the role of faith in your life. Be open to God working in you. And this is a question that God asks everybody at all times. Do you know that you can start your day every day with God and you can answer this question? Hey, God, I, I am, I'm sad. 
God, I'm hopeless. God, I'm numb. God, I'm joyful. God, I am grateful. I am here and I'm in need and I want you to work in me. Where are you? The second question will follow up from the first. Where is your brother? This was asked of Cain after he took out his brother Abel. And Abel had a response to God. Some of you will remember this. He asked the famous question. This is the role of faith. Is Am I my brother's keeper? Faith answers these questions. Faith gives us meaning and purpose. And it brings reason and order and beauty into our lives. As we know, as we come to learn that God wants us to ask these questions. To answer them and to ask them. And the answer is yes, you are. Your faith teaches us, yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, you have a role with everybody in your life. And then another question that faith brings. This is in, all these are in Genesis. This is Genesis 18:25. Abraham is challenging God. You can do that. You should do that. And Abraham challenges God in this question, shall the judge of all the earth not do justice? Can I give you a little secret to my life? Some of you are like, man, RJ, how could you, man, I, w- I will never want to be a preacher. I'd never want to be a pastor. Like all these questions that you get answered and people, you know, losing and leaving and deconstructing and challenging and all the social issues and all the, and all this. I mean, it's just got to be exhausting to, to be ready to give a reason for the answer, the hope that is in you and have all these answers. And listen, I don't have to, look, I don't have infallible certainty about everything. But I have a confident understanding in the revelation of God. Listen, faith is not so much a puzzle that you solve easily. It's a mystery that leads to relationship. And every single time in my life, it leads here. And I fall back on this. When you come at me and I don't really know, like, yeah, you know. And I don't have to be right about everything. You know, I can can be wrong about some stuff. I can be wrong. You can be wrong. But I come back to this every time when you're wanting to know with God this and God that. If I'm not sure, I'm not certain, or we disagree, I always go back to this. God's going to do what's right. Always. I, I, I don't know. I don't hyperventilate anymore or freak out. I just, I believe in God. I believe he's always going to do what's right. I'm not always going to do what's right. I am going to let you down. I joked earlier, but if I haven't already, stick around. I'm going to let you down. Every man, if you put your faith in the wisdom of man, woman, We're going to let each other down, but God's not. I have, listen, my testimony this morning, I have a peace. And here, after these questions, I'm going to close on this as our team comes up. Beyond the questions are the verbs. In John, John 8, that's our passage today about knowing, about knowing and following and abiding and letting the truth set you free. In the Gospel of John, I was noticing five verbs. There's patterns to these verbs. The first one is this. The first one is see. That God would allow us to not, to borrow the words of one writer, not just to take some blind leap in the dark, but to step into the light. To step into the light of following Jesus, to, to take him at his word and to apply it to our lives. Because the only faith that matters is a faith that is practiced, that's genuinely practiced. And to see in the second word there is the word we've talked about, the word we've highlighted. It's the word know. Again, it's not a certain, some of you are waiting on this, you're waiting for a certain infallibility on everything, and you're just not going to get it. Let God give you a confident understanding. Quit trying to solve the puzzle so easily, and let the mystery lead you to the relationship. What about this, God? What about this? What about this? What about this? God's going to do what's right. God is just. He is the one that we follow. The third verb here is the verb love. I will know one day fully, but now I only know in part. 
But what counts is as we follow the mystery to the relationship is that we love. The fourth verb is obey. Time and time again, the scriptures warn us to move away from lip service to life practice. What do you know? What has Jesus said to you? What spiritual truth is being enlightened in your life, but you haven't taken a step forward? It's just lip service for you. We're going to talk about this in the four weeks that remain, but without faith, life is boring. It's, it's boredom. It's stagnation. It's listless living. But when we hear a word, begin to wrestle with it and we apply it we take a step these are the verbs that activate faith these are the verbs that give us testimony these are the verbs that we see these spiritual truths are real and then the last one is to live you can bark signals out to your kids do this do this do this do this but you want all those kids to grow up and to choose to see that when they make wise decisions, they're securing a better future for themselves. And that's what I submit to you is faith in Jesus. When you surrender your life to him, you're securing a better life for yourself in him. A life of freedom. A faith, listen to me, a faith that you'll not just be able to keep, but a faith that you'll want to keep. Because faith is good for you. Faith is good for the world. Faith in finding and following Jesus leads to freedom. Would you stand? Father, these questions, where are you? I'm my brother's keeper. God, will you, will you do justice always? Lord, let us ask them, let us answer them, and let us see the role and the value of faith. Give us a song, Lord, enliven us to the reality that logic and reason and learning is so good, but it's so limited. There's ideas and there's memories and images and intentions and associations. And your word is living and active. And unlike anything else, unlike any telescope or microscope or anything from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, God, it can discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And this word of Jesus, this word, uh, Lord, is only, it's only made alive in our lives as we move past lip service into life practice. Would you help us in being followers of Jesus, of learning in these few weeks ahead, to learning more about faith? For the hardened person, for the one uh, in a cynical place, almost given over to despair, Lord, I pray that you would help, that your light would pervade the darkness, the blindness, and the gloom. Lord, I thank you that the gospel is freedom. For where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When we follow you, we find freedom. In Galatians 5, we use our freedom to serve others. Lord, I pray for our young people that we would grow in our faith. Be able to be proud of faith. To see that it leads to love and life. Work in us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.